Welcome to the 100th episode of Brother, Brother, Brother. In honor of this monumental milestone, we celebrate one of America's greatest bands, The Replacements, in a manner that's never been done before. We brought together Peter Jesperson, founder of Twin Tone Records, discoverer, and longtime manager of The Replacements, Michael Hill, former Warner Brothers A&R man who signed the band and shepherded them through their post-Let It Be major label years, and Bob Mayer, noted music critic and author of the band's definitive biography, New York Times bestselling Trouble Boys, The True Story of The Replacements, one of the greatest rock and roll books ever written. These three men have never publicly been interviewed together, so it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Peter Jesperson's living room, where he... Bob Mayer and I sit and in an homage to the legendary Bastards of the Young video, Michael Hill joins us on speaker from his stoop in Hoboken. Thank you so much to all of our listeners and congratulations to my brothers, Jeremy Sartori, Christian Lewis, and our intrepid producer, Damian Kendall, on 100 episodes. And this just in, you can now listen to episodes on brand new Brother, Brother, Brother app, which also gives you access to additional articles, music clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It also the place where you can interact with us directly through the TalkBack feature. Ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search Brother, Brother, Brother in iTunes or Google Play. As always, you can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. So once again, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today for the first time ever talking to Peter Jesperson, Michael Hill, and Trouble Boys author, Bob Mayer, about The Replacements their dismal Rock and Roll Hall of Fame chances, suitcases full of cocaine, Paul Westerberg's prodigious songwriting talent, their mercurial live shows, and their hazardous history. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother 100th episode. How, uh, Peter, how did you stumble into this life of crime? You spent a lot of time with the band. You managed them. You signed them. You, uh, you know, you discovered them essentially. How did that happen? Uh, well, we had Twin Tone Records was a label that we had started um, in late 1977, and uh, of course, you know, uh, began the process of looking at what local bands we'd want to record. And and we always said that we felt almost forced into existence, uh, the label Twin Tone, because there was so much good stuff happening in Minneapolis. So it wasn't like we, uh, I mean, we we had a, an embarrassment of riches in that respect at that time. And um, and so we had a couple of things cooking. You know, we knew who we wanted to sign initially, uh, Curtis A. and, and uh, a group mm. called Fingerprints and a group called The Suburbs were our first three. Curtis A. under the name, initially it was called Spooks when he was signed. By the time the record came out, he changed the band name to Spooks. I mean, it was thumbs up when he got signed and changed the name to Spooks. Um, so fast forward to 1980, I was managing a record store uh, and uh, had been getting a lot of demos for Twin Tone at that time, two years into the label, a little bit over two years into the label. 
and um, also had been DJing in a local underground rock club. And so I was getting tapes for both purposes and often didn't know when I was getting a tape which it was for. And um, Paul Westerberg came into the record store one day and handed me a cassette, and I don't... Uh, I, apparently he had been in the store some, but I didn't remember him, pretty quiet guy. Uh, and uh, But he handed me a cassette, and, uh, and I... Uh, you know, put it in my box of cassettes, and and uh, I was a little bit behind. I had had tapes accumulating, um, and I would listen every so often when I would get enough that I would be uh, uh, felt guilty enough to mm-hmm. to catch up on my listening. And so, uh, one day I I started throwing in tapes while I was doing paperwork for the store, uh, sitting in the little office at the back of the record store, and um, you know. I don't know, half a dozen tapes into my listening session. I put in this tape Paul had given me, which opened with the song Raised in the City. And uh, it was one of those instant things. You know, I, I've said it a million times, I guess, if ever I had a magic moment, it was right then. It just, I had that sort of uh, eureka moment, like, fast. And uh, uh, I think that it actually about, I don't know what it is, a minute into the song or 40 seconds into the song, Paul hits a line where he's saying... Uh, uh, I got a honey with a nice tight rear. She gets rubber in all four gears. And it just knocked me off my chair. And I, I, I laughed out loud and I thought, you know, this was like a dirty version of Chuck Berry. You know, I mean, it was like an X-rated Chuck Berry. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> What did it come in under? What, what was the name of the of the artist, so to speak? The was replacements. It, it was yeah. the replacements. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they had, by that point, they had started out as the impediments, and then, um, as it happened, they had played a show at a sober teen dance at a kind of converted Catholic school that was for sober teens. Was it a um, Catholic school for uh, irony? <laughs> Catholic school for irony. That was uh, in St. Paul, and so they had already kind of been banned from that show and told you'll never work in this town again under that name, The Impediment. So they had already changed it probably only about a month or two before that. So it all happened pretty quick. But the funny thing, and P- Peter knows, of course, because it's his tape, that tape is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the cassette that Paul brought in. That yeah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, And it was, the, the funny part is... On loan. On the, yeah, on loan. <laughs> I didn't give it to him. But it was, uh, the, if you see the cassette... Good smart man. <laughs> if you see the cassette, it's funny because uh, it's Paul's handwriting and he scratched some stuff. That's a Max L. Uh, there's actually a picture of it in, in, in Trouble Boys. But, um, Wait, they, so they have the tape, but they won't put the band in the rock hall? <laughs> yeah. Well, they have a bunch of replacement stuff in there. In fact, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were just there, and they said tons of my stuff is very prominently displayed still. So we can, wow. we can hopscotch timelines here. When are they? When are they being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall? <laughs> well, of Fame? they were nominated. They were nominated in uh, 2013, uh, right around the time 2013 or 2014. Sorry, 2014. They got into the kind of final group of nominees uh, and didn't make it in, and have since not been in there. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, I spoke to somebody very recently who is on the nominating committee, because uh, I saw the nominating committee list this year. Uh, you know, they've changed the Rock and Roll mm-hmm. Hall of Fame nominating committee. I saw the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominating committee. There's probably, I don't know, 20 some odd people, and or 30. Half, or maybe more than half, knew the replacements, were fans, had, you know, business with them, which could be good or bad. But I was like, oh, God, they're a shoe in. And then I asked this guy who was pretty high up on the nominating committee, I said, you know, you, they got in and, or, you know, nominated in 2014. You'd think they're, you know, might get another shot. And he said they actually got the least votes of anybody uh, you know, who, who was nominated. But but I still think they eventually will get in when you look at There's got to the be vote. a lobbying effort at some point. Or is, this, or is this like the baseball writers of America where if you were a dick to them, uh, somehow I it's going to come know. back and bite you in the ass? Literally, Michael, it's like uh, the people on there are like, Rick Krim, Sandy Alouette, Seymour Stein. I mean, you know, there's like literally more than half the people are are had good feelings about the replacements at one time or another. So I think they'll probably get yeah get nominated again. But you know, I mean, it takes a uh, while. So so Michael uh, Michael's joining us uh, via uh, phone. But Michael, how what what brought you to the replacements originally? Um, obviously, uh, Peter was hoarding the first tape. <laughs> so, um, you know, what what brought them to your attention and, and what ultimately took you out to uh, Minneapolis? Um, I think it was the uh, prospect of, of great prosperity, <laughs> uh, fame by association, a corner office. Come to the Twin promotion. Cities, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what, what, uh, how did they first cross your, your uh, field of vision? Well, uh, you know, looking back... When I was at the, I was an editor at the New York Rocker, you know, this monthly publication that uh, people in the know used to read. And uh, Peter, was it Jim Walsh who did the review? No, it was Phil, I want to say Phil Freeman, but there was a review in either the second to last or the last issue of the New York Rocker. It was the last issue. Of Sorry Ma? Of of Sorry Ma, yeah. Rank and file were going to be our cover. Stars for that one. Yeah, we never, we never. No, actually, I think I, I, I beg your pardon. I believe that review came out. It was the subsequent issue. I think we never came out. Yeah, and I uh, think maybe Tony Lone Tree, who was another uh, Minneapolis writer, one of the first people to write about him, he might have pitched the rocker a story. Yeah, that, no, it was the Phil. Whoever I yeah. thought it was whoever Phil, whatever his last name, yeah. that rings a bell to me. But anyway. Be that as it may, that's how I really heard of them. And you read the review and you were intrigued. Uh, yeah, but you know, everybody like Andy was talking about the very. You know, I was just hearing about them from a lot of people, and we ended up uh, Ira and I booking them at our Ira Kaplan and I of Yellow Tango did when the Rocker went out of business. We started this uh, weekly live music series called Music for Dozens at a little place called Folk City on West 3rd Street. And uh, in April, I think it was, of, of 83, we had the replacements come in. And you most likely remember this, Peter, um, because I, I, uh, Tommy was like on spring break from Junior high school. High. Yeah. yeah, 10th grade. Or at that point, he may have just quit school. Yeah, but it, it, it be the, however we did it, it was... Uh, uh, it was because we knew he wasn't going to be in school. And uh, I hadn't started, I guess I hadn't started working at the record label at that point. Uh, I started in September of 83. But my, you know, I remember seeing them uh, at any number of venues that week. Didn't they, didn't they play a whole bunch of places? Yeah. Peter? Yeah. 
Folk City and Great Gildersleeves and... Danceteria, maybe? Yeah. Danceteria, yeah, with the Violent Femmes. And we didn't, I remember the mats didn't go on until like 2 in the morning. So they'd gotten drunk once, sobered up, and gotten drunk a second time, I think, by the time they played. And then uh, I think we also did something out in Long Island with uh, Flipper. Wow. Yeah. And was it in the band, save for Paul, stayed in around the corner from me in Hoboken at Byron George's house? Well, you know, the, the whole first trip out east sort of began with trying to find somebody to help me book them. And uh, Danny Amos was one of the people who helped sort of uh, make introductions to clubs and, and ultimately to Frank Riley, the booking agent and whatnot. So uh, we had an opportunity uh, for some of us to stay with Danny, who lived in Hoboken. And then Bill Sullivan had a cousin or something that also lived in Hoboken. So we were going to split between those two places. And then our one of our roadies, Tom Carlson, uh, had a sort of an ex-girlfriend who lived in Manhattan who had a place. And we all kind of felt like it wouldn't be bad to have, you know, sort of let Paul have his own space rather than have him rooming with the band, so to speak, and just being in, you know, party mode 24-7. And whether that worked or not, I guess, is anybody's guess. But, I mean, so that's why we were split up. So the, the interesting thing, if I could say, though, is, like, having done the book, is there's a lot of weird kind of connections uh, that meant a lot in The Replacement's career. You mentioned the New York Rocker. So uh, when Peter was at Orfolk uh, managing the record store in Minneapolis for many years, one of the guys who worked there was Andy Schwartz, who was a New Yorker. Uh, who went back to New York and bought the New York Rocker. And so he was the, I guess, pu- editor and publisher of the New York Rocker, or maybe the publisher. And, and then and then Michael was working there. So I, I don't know if Andy's sort of uh, connection with Minneapolis or Twin Toners, certainly his awareness probably, uh, uh, you know, kind of the replacements are in there. Michael hears about them. Michael books them, and then a few months later, Michael makes an important career choice. Rather than becoming, was it music editor of the Village Voice, you chose to take a job uh, with Warner Brothers and <laughs> as an A and R man. And eventually, you know, so it's like it's weird the the kind of fate and kismet it's kind of played way, a role. So, Michael, you took so you took a job um, with. Uh, with Warner proper or, or yeah, Sire or with, with Warner Brothers proper, yes, oh. and uh, which you know Sire Records was part of uh, Warner's, and um, you know I really got the job because Karen Berg, my boss and a wonderful person, um, used to come to the Music for Dozens shows, our 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 series, and she was very tiny, so I always made sure she had a place to see the band properly. <laughs> And that's how our friendship began, and that's how, you know, I ended up there. Um, but I have to say, for me, like, the, the, the big moment uh, of, of enlightenment for me, for the replacements, I have to hand this to Peter. It's like I still have just these really vivid memories of Peter with this little briefcase with cassettes in it. Am I, am I making this up, or is this real? It's real. And I just remember... Because there was a guy when they did Please to Meet Me who we called Vito who used to have a briefcase too, although I think it was filled with something else. And I, I, but I always complain. I always think of Vito with his briefcase and Peter with his briefcase. But I just remember Peter coming to my apartment in Hoboken and I believe bringing Paul along and us playing music from those cassettes. And just Peter was just so besotted with this stuff. And it was so... Uh, 
he just kind of made this experience like really powerful for me and you know Paul I just if, if again if I'm not just dreaming at all I feel like he was just kind of sinking in a chair as was his wont to do but uh, you know he needed Peter, needed Vito's Peter, briefcase <laughs> but, 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 but I do wisely played me songs the more ballady type stuff like uh, you're getting married uh, is that what it's called yeah yeah, uh, you're getting married, like stuff that, or, or within your reach, like stuff that really like hit me in a way that was different than what we had even heard before. Something that sort of foretold the future. Convincing to me about Paul as a, like the depth of his talent and. Well, Michael, I think one one thing uh, maybe uh, I'm just wondering about the because I remember playing you cassettes sitting in a van outside a hotel room in like North Carolina. That, oh my God, that might be even more like a bigger moment for me than the the apartment. No, but that happened after. Yeah. Did it? Okay. Yeah, that was yes. that, that was. First, we listened yeah. in my apartment. Then we were. I was coming down. I think on Warner's tab to see the band at the Cat's Cradle, and we side motel room and uh you played me the demos i believe that they had done with alex oh okay yeah that would have been like 85 yeah. that was okay. another one I, I just remember all these somewhat i drunken moments yeah with peter us both kind of raps rhapsodizing over this music yeah that one i remember i still remember that part that that parking lot of that motel it's funny what's interesting about this to me really when you look back on it is how paul is so fucking grumpy about those uh, demos and and he makes these like even somewhat recently made a comment to somebody in 
uh, when the Mats were doing the reunion tour over in England and he talked about the reissues and how, you know, some former manager uh, purloined his demos or made off with his demos or something. And I was thinking, that is so wrong. I mean, he gave me those demos. I mean, he ran them. There were times he'd come over, he'd call me at one in the morning and say, I got this new song and I got to get it out of my house or I'm going to erase it. Can I drop it off? And he'd run to my house, which was like 15 blocks and, you know, give me this tape or whatever. I mean, he was eagerly giving me the tapes and I, and I dutifully kept them all those years and, and then playing them for people I thought really needed to get the big picture like you, Michael. And, and, uh, and that's part of what made people realize that there was more to Paul than, you know, uh, uh, you know, raised in the city or fuck school, you know, I mean, it was one of those things people couldn't believe that the guy who wrote those songs also wrote, you're getting married or you hold me in suspension or, uh, you know, within your reach. So, I mean, it's just funny that Paul likes the payoff, but, you know, he sort of, it's, it's, it's like revisionist history in his mind with how that all actually happened. Well, let me, let me throw this out to you, uh, because um, we have uh, the chronicler of uh, the history of the replacements <laughs> sitting here, yeah. uh, the great uh, debate settler. Um, Bob, like how much of the untangling, I mean, you, so you started this project, it took about 10 years from what I read. Yeah, about start to finish from the inception to sort of release when it was about seven years. How much untangling of, of truths and half-truths did you wind up, uh, or how many (laughs) stories did you have to interpret and, and sort of, uh, um, confirm or deny? Well, it's funny. Or correct. Yeah, it's funny that you should say that because actually, uh, looking back, I was incredibly lucky to have Peter and Michael kind of as the anchors of the book, uh, in, in a way, in terms of uh, relatively sober and you know detail-oriented people who were part of the two halves of the band's career, essentially. I mean, Peter was there from the beginning, really, through 86, and Michael was there 86 to 91. So it was kind of very... I was very lucky. I don't know, actually, that I could have done the book uh, without both of them in, in the sense of being able to go back and say, you know, when did this happen? How did this happen? Um, what was the kind of, you know, the feeling in that moment or your recollections? And of course, even then I had to flesh out details or find out things, but it was really incredible to have these kind of twin pillars of information and chronology and knowledge. And Peter had an incredible archive that he'd saved and Warner Brothers, you know, had a, had a really good archive. And Michael was just Michael has a really good memory, too. I know he probably, poor Michael has suffered years and years of my questions, and he thought it would be over when the book came out, and now we're, we're still we're, talking. But well, We're, we're going to get to Michael's <laughs> suffering eventually because it's actually but, one of the but, key com- components of the but, book. But. but it is true, though, because, um, you know, to have you know people who were essentially in charge and had a great sense for, for the music and the bigger picture, which I think both Peter and Michael did, um, it was was actually totally crucial. So that made it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. That said, it was still difficult to, you know, do figure out a lot of things because memory is just funny, you know, uh, in terms of people remember shows hap- something happening at a show. It's, it is the Rashomon effect of, like, you know, 10 people will remember it 10 different ways. And, you know, sometimes you have bootlegs to check it against or recordings or contemporary press reviews and stuff like that. But generally speaking the book was really only possible because I had the two halves of the band's career kind of covered by by having Peter and Michael to kind of rely on. And, and they, 
uh, I, when I look back at my list of transcripts, I mean, I, I definitely talk to them most, yeah, well, much to their chagrin, I'm sure. One of the things that I'm really curious about going all the way back, and, and we touched upon it a few minutes ago, was uh, the, you know, for, for a time it really felt like Minneapolis was the center of the universe uh, musically, and, but that music wasn't all replacements, Husker Du, um, and Soul Asylum. I mean, you had Prince and Champagne and, and Lip Sync and all these, you know, weird, uh, disparate kinds of, of uh, scenes going on. Was it, was it palpable in uh, the Twin Cities at that point that it was a mecca, or was it kind of, did you still feel like an island out there that, that wasn't, you know... New York, LA, and whatever. I, I think it was probably. I mean, a little bit of both. I think sometimes, you know, you're, you know, like with with anything artistic, I think you would kind of lurch from, you know, overconfidence to, you know, uh, fear. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, terror. You know, being terrified, um, or or you know, not confident at all. Um, I think that the the things about Minneapolis that I really liked, uh, you know, that I thought were consistent traits of the Minneapolis scene was that. Um, you know, like even at Orfolk, which was a little bit the center of the universe at that time, uh, anything, you know, all good music was welcome. You know, we didn't, in fact, I think the only, we, we used to say the only uh, music we didn't have a reasonably good selection of at our store was opera. I mean, we had <laughs> classical and we had jazz, and but just for some reason nobody knew anything about opera. I didn't really understand opera. So uh, I, I thought that was one of the things that Minneapolis was so good at was like just having a variety of music and everybody supported everybody else to some degree. I mean, I don't know that our scene really was too involved, say, with the, you know, the Northeast Minneapolis Prince, you know, stuff early on. But I mean, you know, so it wasn't But it wasn't all a one or the other necessarily. Yeah, People liked other. all of yeah. at the same time. The, the interesting thing, too, and I think maybe Michael will agree is, you know, by the 80s and that whole alt and American indie movement was in some ways a return to regionalism. You know, in the 60s, you had regional bands and bands would come up through regions. By the 70s, you know, when, when the music industry kind of exploded and became this kind of corporate thing, it was much more about moving to New York, mm -hmm. moving to L.A., and there was a focus on bands coming out of industry centers. What happened in the 80s, you know, in Minneapolis and Athens and Austin, Austin was kind of this return to regionalism. And I think, in a way... Uh, replacements were very much a part of that. And I think in the book, I, I had quote Michael as saying, talking about those first shows in New York when the replacements showed up in New York, and it was this, or, or maybe it was it was either Michael or Glenn Morrow saying, you know, we were kind of knocked out that something so great and so kind of complete and wonderful came from, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, outside of, you know, they were almost exotic in a way, but it was also kind of eye-opening to see that there was great music coming from these smaller regional scenes. So I don't know if Michael will agree with that. But. Actually, well, Michael, I mean, if I might just uh, just add, lard on to that question, which is uh, you have once told me um, a little bit about the uh, race for the prize between you and, was it Karen? Um, but when you were both aiming to, to sign the replacements in Husker Du at the same time? No, it was, well, you tell it was a guy from Columbia, actually. So, well, yeah, yeah, the signing replacements, there was a guy from Columbia and me. But then there was also the a, a, but, a story you told me, I think, a long time ago about Husker Du and the replacements. Uh, that you yeah, were, that wasn't so much a race. It was just funny because Karen was... Uh, uh, how should I put this? Because, uh, you know, we were extremely close, but she was always like, are you sure? Are the replacements ready? You think this is right? Do you think we should be doing this? And then she went and just said, we should sign who's going to do it. Yeah, immediately afterwards or soon afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that's, I guess, the prerogatives of the person who's the department head. Well, and, and the truth of it is, too, probably, uh, 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 maybe Bob Mold won't like this, but part of the reason I'm betting why Karen was eager then or willing to sign Husker Du so soon after the replacements is Michael had been trying to sign the replacements for a fair amount of time, or at least as a junior a and guy, kind of encouraging the more senior people and was meeting with some resistance. And then it, the truth of it was it was Seymour Stein who kind of swooped in from another side, saw the replacements at, at Irving Plaza in December of 84, fell in love with them, decided to sign them, and then Michael kind of became the A&R guy. And I think Seymour and Karen had a, a historically a famous rivalry. And so maybe now that Seymour had signed this band, maybe she was more willing to sign the kind of, you know, Minneapolis alt-rock band. I don't know. That's my sort of take on it is that that could have been a part of why all of a sudden Karen changed her tune about, uh, you know, these rough that's an interesting. That's an interesting thought. There definitely was a rivalry, which I didn't realize I had stepped into. And, uh, you know, when I got to Warner's, uh, though Karen was my person, Seymour was very keenly aware of my presence and wondering what I was interested in. Right. And, and therefore, you know, presented to me this, like, hey, I sign them, you get to have them. Like, what could be easier? <laughs> and frankly, yeah, if I didn't go along with that, then they, we, they would have gone elsewhere. Or maybe they would have gone with Seymour, I don't know. But I felt like I was the, uh, I'm, without, you know, uh, putting too much emphasis on my own role here, you know, I feel like I was the guy who knew him and had the relationship, so it was much to Seymour's advantage. I think Husker Du were probably a lot more presentable to a major label at that time than the replacements. Which too. seems odd musically, but yeah, probably they were. I mean, they were very. They were much self-managed. Self -managed. Almost. I, I was uh, organized. Organized. Yeah, yeah. I saw. Uh, I, I Reliable. I, I told Peter this. Uh, Michael. Well, certainly, Bob was incredibly organized. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I saw uh, some of Husker Du's archives a couple of years ago, and there was a ledger, you know, an accounting ledger, accounting for all their gigs, uh, all their dates, money spent on gas expenses, in this pristine, immaculate handwriting. And I asked the guy, their, their lawyer, I said, "Well, who's who wrote this?" And he said, "Bob did." And the idea of Bob Mould handwriting in this like perfect writing every amount, every detail is like so funny just to think of like Paul doing that. Yeah. He invented the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> right, right. So what would yeah, what would Paul's version of that look like? Yeah, there wouldn't be one. <laughs> yeah, it would look like Vito's briefcase. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess one of the things that I wanted to uh, you know, and I, I said this to you um, before, uh, Bob, which is that um, you know this this 
um, Trouble Boys really winds up reading like a novel. And I don't, like, how much of that did you know going in? Did I make in? up? I made no, up all of it. <laughs> how much did you know going in? Because, uh, you know, certainly Peter and, and Michael are, are, are significant characters in this in this novel. But there's, I mean, this is some Dostoevsky shit. Well, the, the, the thing that was interesting for me uh, as I got into the story, I mean, there's two parts. There's kind of the, the band's prehistory and the personal stories of the members. I knew going in there, there was, you know, there was stuff there lurking beneath the surface it was probably going to be pretty heavy and pretty important to to what the band became um but the the thing about the replacements is and and why i mean the reason peter and michael are both important characters in the book is because they were very important characters in the in the story of the replacements and in their career um and i think that's true of of some other people too and it's unique not unique but it, the replacements were not a very self-determining group in terms of their career uh you know they 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 from the beginning they to start with none of them could drive so none of them really could get to the gig so that as a baseline uh, means that somebody has to be there to help you with that stuff and I think in a way um, once Paul found the, the Stinson brothers and Chris Mars that kind of satisfied a level of his ambition uh, and he was very happy to let other people kind of guide things now he would sometimes react or, or or force people's hands but it's like or sabotage or sabotage so, but the replacements as a group they, they didn't it wasn't like REM where it's like we have band meetings this is how we plan things this is what we're going to do so whoever was around them whoever was guiding them whether it was Peter or Michael or uh, you know management lawyers as it, as it went along uh, those people were kind of Im- important maybe more important to their story than and, and how they reacted to them and how they dealt with them and who those people were and I think you know, for me, the big question always was, well, what kind of person would put up with everything you had to to deal with the replacements? And as it turned out, in the case of, of Peter and Michael, they probably had things, you know, experiences growing up uh, and things in their background that made them able to deal with, with, with the replacements. Uh, maybe not inclined necessarily, but it made them, you know, well-suited to the task beyond the fact that they loved the music and, mm-hmm. and really thought it could be, that thought it was special and could be something great. So all of that, I think, kind of lends itself to why it feels like an interconnected story in terms of all these people, because they did share it. I mean, Paul says in the book, I said, why did you trust Michael and sign with him? And he said, because he was like us. He was young and working class and Catholic and you know what I mean? So I think I think the band even was aware of that on an instinctual level of who they were working with mm-hmm. and who they could trust, you know. But I also think there's something to, you know, the one essential thing about writing a book about anybody is there's got to be, you know, there's got to be sort of the, the big draw is the just the immense talent of this oh, band. Yeah. And so if that's at the root of it, and this is just like one of those things, because I think about both Michael and I doing A&R for so many years, you know, there's a million times you miss it, you don't, you don't, you know, you, you, you don't hear something that you should have heard as great and all that kind of thing. But with the replacements, for whatever reason, it clicked with me so instantly. And I know that it was within a couple of months of getting that tape that I actually had a conversation with somebody who was ridiculing me because there was a lot of people who made fun of me. You know, like, oh, 13-year-old bass player, this is really going to go far, Peter. What are you thinking? You know, whatever. And and uh, and I remember actually wagging my finger at somebody at one point and saying, someday people are going to be fucking writing books about these guys. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of a funny, you know, that's a you know a, a little validation of mine that I look back on. I think, well, every once in a while I got it right. The Nostradamus you know? of the Twin no, Cities. <laughs> but I, and I mean that seriously. Both these guys are kind of saints in the story. I mean, in Peter's case, quite literally, and I said this publicly, I don't think the band... 
the replacements, as it were, would have existed or lasted much more than six months if Peter hadn't found them and nurtured them the way he did. And I really don't think the band would have had the success and or lasted as long as it did at Warner Brothers if, if it wasn't for somebody as patient and 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 deft at dealing with all the things that came with the replacements as Michael. I mean, I, I think they were a band that was meant to be very short-lived and somehow made eight records and lasted 12 years. And I think in large part it's because of they, they had these two angels sort of in their corner. No, and it reads like that. I mean, it very much. And I, I, you know, I've known Michael for a number of years. And, and so when I was reading the book, I, you know, it, I, I felt terribly for, for Michael's plight and, and for Peter's as well. And I didn't know Peter at the time, but I, uh, he's just invited me into his house. And, I, and I'm finding that they're very similar uh, in the in the in the um, you know sort of, sort of kindness and and accommodation, but you know I mean I I did you know I was reading the book thinking to myself like, God you guys must have lost it every once in a while and just wanted to kick somebody in the teeth. Uh, I doesn't seem to be your personality, but uh, were those the you know, I mean there had to be those times were there not? Well. I have to interject when the, in the, the way that we intersect in the world of television. Uh, some uh, clearance guy at NBC, I was working on a, a show for them last year, and he said, I could never do your job. Like the, the constant disappointment of you presenting things and someone saying, nah, why don't you find me something else? You know, uh, the, the constant, you know, uh, having to keep presenting new musical ideas to producers and showrunners or whatever. And, and uh, I really feel that uh, world that I was in, particularly with the replacements, <laughs> that level of patience <laughs> has gotten me through this entire other career. You know, whether it's, you know, having um, to sit in front of a bunch of executives at Warner Brothers to try to plead my case about something. And I think really what it is and i think this has to be true peter if you it was kind of like hope springing eternal a kind of innate optimism uh, about the music a faith in the music that superseded all the crap that went along with it and i think that was even more than patience i really believe it was about that about a belief in the music and that at some point, the world will get this. I didn't know Agreed. it was going to be 25 years later. <laughs> I, I, have an, I have an incredibly <laughs> overly simple, uh, and, and uh, well, it's just an overly simple question. Did you have fun? Oh, it was a ball. Because it, it really, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, the fondness for the music and the faith and the, and the talent is one thing, but you, there, there has to be, some degree of, uh, of, of, you know, having some good days because there's a lot of, there sounds like there was a lot of crazy. Uh, well, I think, you know, in, in uh, probably some of that maybe is my fault in the book because I was telling a story that starts out pretty grim, particularly for, for Bob and his family and stuff, and, and even Paul to a certain extent, that it might seem like it was heavy, but the replacements were funny. I mean, I think, the, the, and they were fun, and I think there was a period, certainly for Peter, where it's... Uh, you know, you're pulling in the same direction, you're coming from nothing, you're starting to make something, and that's always exciting. It's always, the, you know, I think most bands and most, even the very successful ones, they look back on the earliest years as, as the most fondly remembered because yeah. everybody was sort of pulling in the same direction. It's maybe only when you get a little success and time goes on that things become a little heavier. Um, 
So I, I, th- I mean, from my perspective, if I failed to convey the pun no, no, no. in the book, but but uh, but but I mean, you know, the thing about the replacements is it was, a, it is a story of extremes, good and bad. You know, but that is their legacy. Ultimately, <laughs> right. is is that they are an incredibly beloved and under it, you know, to to whatever degree you think the the bar was set, you know, to a degree it was it was seen as being underachieving or or. Uh, Trouble prone. Yeah, I mean, somebody, I think maybe it was Charlie Springer or somebody at Warner Brothers said, you know, normally you would never put up with this from a band. Or normally a band, like when Pleased to Meet Me, they flew out 30 executives to Memphis to listen. Normally, there was things that, replacements, normal wasn't the baseline, you know what I mean? It was always one extreme or the other. But, you know, and and sometimes the extremes were, were very, you know, low lows, but the highs were very high. And they always did something, I think, that kept you know, people who worked with them and the label and whoever else believing, like, you know, might be three bad shows in a row, but the fourth show was so amazing or the next new song that Paul came up with was was so amazing that it restored everybody's faith and had them thinking, you know, so that when Michael says, you know, hope springs eternal, I think it was, you know, there was always something that gave people these visions of just how big and important and great they could be. And, you know, circumstances being whatever they were, I think in the end, you know, it kind of, that, that feeling bore out, like it just took... Took 25 years or whatever. before we go light again, but, uh, you know, when uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, particularly about, you know, Bob Stinson leaving the band and then subsequently, um, you know, his life sort of unraveling, um, leading to his death. Uh, what, when you were dealing with them early on, was it, um, you know, was it, it was sort of palpable that, that there was gonna, that there was trouble coming down the pike, or was it... Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, we, we, we've all said, you know, when Bob died, it was, you know, it was, it didn't come as a surprise to anybody. And, and of course it was, you know, <clears throat> sadder than you could have imagined it would be, you know, when you imagined it umpteen times in the past. But, uh, um, yeah, Bob was just the kind of guy who, you know, somebody would walk in the room, in the dressing room and with a handful of pills and Bob would swallow them and then ask him what they were afterwards. You know, I mean, it was just, it was that kind of. Um, that kind of thing sometimes, you know, and so, uh, and, and, you know, we all kind of partook as well, so it was a little bit of, you know, everybody egging everybody else on, and, you know, Bob may have been the more extreme, uh, but, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, up to no good part of the time. So getting back to the fun part, which is uh, the music and the sort of trajectory early, you know, in the early, you know, early on, What's the sort of uh, the turning point? I mean, obviously, you know, you've got your initial epiphany that these are these guys are super talented. What um, you know, 
at what point in the musical um, uh, trajectory did you did you think that they had, were sort of reaching their potential? That they were no no longer were they um, potentially great? That they were simply great? Well, I mean, I, I think for me maybe the big turning point was <clears throat> when Paul, uh, I guess after Sorry Ma came out pre Stink. Um, uh, Paul brought me the cassette that had "You're Getting Married" on it, and that was for me a big turning point because when I that was that was a point where I remember because I knew he was talented and I knew he was you know something very special. Uh, but when I heard "You're Getting Married," I actually had a sense of being scared. I was a little frightened by it. It was so good, and I was frightened by you know, my role, and this was bigger than I'd anticipated, and then could I do this justice? Could I, I mean, how did I get lucky enough to have somebody handing me a song like You're Getting Married? And he he didn't realize, I don't think at the time, how great that song was. And it was so, there was a, there was a period of time early on that was really, uh, you know, when I look back on it, where I don't think Paul really, you know, Paul was cocky. Paul thought, you know, he had, you know, something to offer, or he was maybe going to be famous someday or something. <clears throat> but I don't know that he, <clears throat> that he really understood how great he was. And I, so I was watching him giving me this, these songs and thinking he's not aware of how talented he is yet. And that was a pretty amazing feeling. You had that, that response, sense of responsibility. Yeah, and, yeah. So I was, so you're getting married was a big turning point. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we were making the first record when he brought in Johnny's Gonna Die. That was another big turning point where... Suddenly there was a whole other dimension, you know, brought into, you know, careless and I need more cigarettes and raised in the city. You know, suddenly it was like, wow, this was, you know, his first ballad, really. Just throw the same question to you. Like, what, what sort of, you know, that you there's the initial uh, punch of, of hearing somebody you think is great. But what, at what point did you did you think like, okay, this guy is actually hitting his potential? Um, uh, you know, I initially thought that uh, hearing Hootenanny and, and certainly Let It Be as well. But by the time we got to Tim, and we had songs like. Uh, here comes a regular and uh, left of the dial and bastards of young. Uh, I thought, from a, a major label perspective, that we really were onto something there. Uh, and 
I think the thing here comes a regular in particular, which I believe Peter was lucky enough to be in the studio for, and which was a song that had not been like revealed to me as the NR guy until it was recorded. You know, that was a stunner. And uh, I remember sitting, Karen Berg and I sitting and listening to that, and both of us coming from families where uh, alcoholism had been a uh, factor in our lives. I think both of us were like, what the fuck, man? So I, I think at that point, uh, that was a real stunner for me. I'm going to have you all turn. One of the things I think that was so well portrayed in the in the book, um, and I just swinging party too. Hey, uh, yeah, there you go. But I just I I think this this element was so well portrayed in the book, and um, you know it's what I always sort of thought, even young listening to the replacements, is that this is a this is a a guy in a band that are incredibly ambitious and really frightened to seem ambitious or to be ambitious uh, or to succeed. So, is again, like again, very well articulated, but it seemed like for every time there was a, a, a moment of heartfelt angst, you know, a 16 blue, there was a Gary's got a boner. <laughs> and I didn't think that was a mistake. I would think that they were turned in, you know, sort of simultaneously because you're afraid to, to be that naked as you are on 16 Blue. What? Tell me a little bit about, you know, sort of hearing these things in the sequencing that you heard, you know, or in the sequencing you did and, and about his songwriting as, as it sort of matured and got great. I think you're right. I think that he did kind of lurch from one to another. You know, he would it'd be uh, his own sort of balance system, I think. Um, and I think that... And internally in the group, too, if it had all been one kind of song, you know, when Bob was in the band, they, if they had all been soft and ballady, you know, there was always a kind of... I mean, they were funny guys. There was an inherent sense of humor. So I think, yeah, he did have this kind of internal with himself and within the band kind of mechanism keeping that weird balance. Right, yeah. Well, I think... And also, I, I, I think that in terms of how Paul wrote, um, I, I think when you... One of the things that, you know, history gives you a perspective... Uh, where you can look back, and, and I think uh, a, a truism would be that when I first ran into Paul, the rockers poured out of him like tap water, and the ballads he struggled with. And then at some point in the middle 80s, <clears throat> uh, it's sort of switched over, and the ballads started pouring out of him, and the rockers became harder. He, he started to write less convincing rockers. Um, you know, like for instance, to me, I know Michael and I disagree on some of this, uh, but like Don't Tell a Soul, there were songs on there that I felt were very forced, like uh, We'll Inherit the Earth, But We Don't Want It, Want It, Want It, or um, uh, um, um, what else? Anywhere's meant? Better Than Here. Anywhere's Better Than Here. You know, those songs in particular sounded to me. Yeah, and I, I, I would give you that, yeah. Like and, and, I, and I remember, I also remember Paul actually saying to me as Don't Tell a Soul was being worked on, he said, they want me to write Bastards of Young all over again, and this is supposed to be my dark pop album. I think that was at the point where Paul was... Re I think he wanted, he was ready in his mind to make Big Star Third, his Big Star Third mm -hmm. at that time. But at the same time, the label was, you know, was pushing him to make something or management, commercial. management, maybe, too. <laughs> you know, and management and all that. I mean, in a positive way. Um, and, and also, Paul, I mean, I know from years of writing with him in the van, you know, he loved Top 40 Radio, and he wanted to be on it. Yeah. He wanted to have a hit record. So it wasn't like... You know, the label's pushing him, and Paul doesn't want to do it. But, I mean, there was that, uh, I don't know, dichotomy? Right. Yeah, I have to say that as far as labels and pushing, 
you know, water, if, if, if you wanted to be anywhere uh, where you might be getting pushed, but not in the way that one, you know, in the cliche of the music business hears about, you know, Warner Brothers was the place to be because no matter how much pushing one may have done, uh, everybody was so oriented towards the artist. You know, sometimes I would chuckle when uh, I would hear Pitfall or one of the band members suggesting that, you know, the labels were being villainous and some, the label was being villainous in some way because as I learned once Lenny and Moe departed our offices in the, in the middle 90s, we weren't like the rest of the record business. So uh, another factor I think was Warner Brothers sire you know th this was a, a really good home for this band well it was around the probably and certainly had they gone to columbia records instead i think the story would have been really really different and short-lived if they'd have been on columbia or yeah yeah or geffen yeah, or something I mean, it's I, you know beyond uh, whatever angels were on their side warners and sire the whole structure of those labels and the personalities from the top down were unique in the business and it may, it's the only reason honestly why I had a job in the record business mm. and it's <laughs> and, 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 I don't think any other label would hire me uh, and you know uh, the fact that I got to be there for 15 years and, and got to do a few things I think this speaks well of these people <laughs> I think they care for their artists and they care for their staff so well and Seymour I think it was the, the setup of them technically being signed to Sire, having, you know, and part of the Warner system and Michael being, that was actually unique too, because I think probably there was even less pressure on a Sire act to kind of deliver hits in that way than there would have been if they had been on Warner proper, probably. That's a very good point too, although had I not been in the picture, if I may toot my own horn here for, for a sec, uh, there was no real A&R presence in Sire. Right, so, right, right. The band's largely just did what they pleased and came and went. So right. having that kind of laissez-faire uh, label approach plus somebody who was very active in helping, you know, that was kind of a win-win situation. Well, and yeah, and that was the kind of interesting thing too at that time, and Seymour Stein has a new book out, you know, a uh, memoir, which is really kind of fascinating, but it's true, Sire at that time, as far as rock, rock bands went, they didn't really have an A&R staff, but also... If you think of all the famous "quote unquote" sire bands from that era, they were really A and R'd overseas. You know, the the Smiths and whoever yeah, else. And, and and Seymour says, you know, I used these foreign labels as kind of my A and R, and he'd bring them over. So the replacements, it was a kind of unique thing. And in some ways, that probably hurt the replacements in in Warner Brothers not having Seymour being more kind of like active and shepherding them through the label. But you know, but some of that's also was just when when the replacements really got the push. I think. Uh, with with Michael's help was when the attention of Warner Brothers West Coast kind of went on them with Don't Tell a Soul and Lenny mm -hmm. Warner got more involved and Stephen Baker who was their product manager got more involved and Michael was in, you know involved in that as well and so um, it's interesting you know the, the the label stuff doesn't it wasn't that the label was overbearing in the replacements career but it did have some impact at various points depending on who was who was involved at what time you know kind of thing. Um. Wow, this conversation's even better than I expected. I think we're going to break this into two parts. So tune in next week for part two of our 100th episode, a.k.a. episode 100.5, with Peter Jesperson, Michael Hill, and Trouble Boys author Bob Mayer. 
talking about the replacements. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.